Welcome to Gears Action Growth, shifting business culture one conversation at a time. My name is Dr. Josephine Palladmo, and my superpower is creating business cultures that transform organizations team by team. Randall Pierce, Director of Think Insight Advice, joins myself and Ian today to discuss how the stories we tell about ourselves can play an important role in determining our success. As Shakespeare said, beware of the stories you tell yourself, or surely you will live them. Hi everyone, hey Josie, I'm really thrilled to invite uh, Randall Pierce, uh, Managing Director of Think Inside Advice, to join us today. Uh, I met Randall back in 2007, as did you Josie, we, we had more than a few drinks on Randall's balcony um, after we had come up for a conference from Melbourne. Such a nice way to meet someone. <laughs> and we're all shocked to discover that 15 years has gone by since then. Um, in the meantime, Randall and I have done some work back in 2009 around climate change, which was very prescient. Uh, Randall was leading a project called Thermometer, which was uh, about tapping into community perceptions around climate change. And I was interviewing farmers in Western Victoria who all were commenting that the, the desert was moving south. Um, and here we are in, you know, 2022, and it's all ramping up. Um, I was really delighted to be up in Sydney with Randall just 10 days ago, and actually having a strategic planning workshop in real life with real people in a real building. Um, it was wonderful, got a real kick out of it. Um, and um, yeah, we're keen to invite Randall to share his expertise around coaching and specifically this notion of narrative coaching, um, which I'm very keen to learn about. Absolutely, Ian. So thank you so much. And yes, and Randall, of course, we, we have to say that, you know, since you started uh, Think uh, way back then, and I know we can't believe it's way back then, um, you've become a trusted advisor to dozens of leaders in the not-for-profit and government sectors. And Randall also has a Master of uh, Public Administration from the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University, as well as other qualifications. But Randall, over to you. Tell us a little bit more about you and your experience. Well, thank you very much, uh, Josephine. Um, look, I'm originally from Canada, um, and so my life is divided into two parts. The first part was in Canada and the second part here in Australia. Um, but the common thread running through both of them is uh, not-for-profit management. So I spent uh, the first half of my career um, working in not-for-profits of all sorts, from, from sports clubs to political parties to industry associations to social service agencies and charities. Um, to the point where I was the CEO of a 63,000 member professional association um, for engineers. Um, since moving to Australia in 2003, um, I've continued to work with not-for-profits, but um, as a consultant. Um, and first at uh, Ipsos, uh, the uh, Australian division of the international research firm. And then, as you say later, through Think, Insight and Advice. Um, everything that I do, uh, Josie, uh, uh, has to do with boards. Um, and so boards are my clients, CEOs are my friends. And um, yeah, we try to make a positive change in the not-for-profit sector. Oh, that's fantastic. And, and, and Randall, really important work. And uh, we will definitely talk about the impact on boards as we go into the conversation, I'm hoping. But but I just wanted to start out a little bit broadly because I, I you were talking when we were discussing this earlier 
uh, that um, narrative coaching in particular has a, a real impact in the in the methodology that around your coaching. And you said that we construct our world and give it meaning from the stories we tell, and that they play an important role in determining our success. Can you expand on that for us, Randall? Sure, Josephine. Well, it's actually uh, quite an old idea. Um, Shakespeare said, beware the stories you tell yourself, for surely you will be lived by them. Um, and so he was talking about the power that the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves have over us. And um, in narrative coaching, um, we use story as a vehicle for change. So because stories are an invention of our imaginations, we, we connect events um, and give them meaning by giving the story a plot and telling the story. But when you think about it, the story sits outside of ourselves. Um, it describes a version of ourselves, but it is not ourselves. And so, Josie, you can change a story. You can reauthor a story much easier than you can change yourself or some of your fundamental bedrock beliefs. And mm -hmm. so by getting people to um, speak about their lives in terms of story, you make it accessible to change. And really, I think at the end of the day, that's why people are coming to coaches like me. Um, they're looking to make a change. They're looking to make a transition from who they were to who they want to become. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and Randall, what kind of, so I know you were saying you speak, you, you actually speak to CEOs and boards and they're your friends, but are they the kind of clients we're talking about here? Is it people who are perhaps in those leadership roles and they're, they're coming to you because there's, there's been a, an issue that, that they can't overcome by themselves or they need some help with. You know, tell us a little bit about the context around which the, the work you do is done. Sure, okay. Um, so uh, uh, anyone can benefit from coaching, Josie. Anyone can benefit from coaching. Uh, anyone who's prepared um, to engage in a serious way, in a structured dialogue uh, with a trained professional um, with a desire to make positive change. Anyone can benefit from coaching. Now, I focus on uh, leaders in the not-for-profit sector because I'm a not-for-profit specialist. Okay, yeah. so that's, that was, uh, you know, the subject of my, my graduate studies um, at the Kennedy School, um, and it has been my life's work. Um, and whilst uh, coaches don't offer advice, um, Coach counterparts or potential coach counterparts, and that's the name we give to the people who are uh, in the coaching relationship with the coach. Um, people who are seeking out coaches um, tend to look for people who have experience that is similar to or relevant to their own situation. Now, uh, frankly, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter if I have any expertise in their area but somehow it's reassuring mm. um, to potential coach counterparts that I understand the context. And if, if I might just continue, I, I really, I focus on 
board chairs, directors, and CEOs because they sit around the board table. And the board table has its own set of rules. Okay, so you have the legal duties of, of directors. But layered on top of that, in the not-for-profit world, we have uh, the not-for-profit uh, principles of good governance issued by the AICD, and we also have governance standards issued by the ACNC. And so because uh, not-for-profits enjoy a special place in society, not-for-profits have a special obligation to practice governance effectively. Now, board chairs and CEOs lead solitary lives. They don't have people to talk to. Yes, I absolutely have found that too. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So a CEO, they're really pinched because they can't really confide in their staff. And they can't really confide in their board chair either because the board chair is the representation of the employer in the employer-employee relationship, right? Um, similarly, a, a board chair is also somewhat isolated, less than the CEO, but still somewhat isolated because whilst they are the first among equals sitting at a table, they really can't um, uh, prepare in advance or, or consult in advance with other directors. Each director needs to satisfy themselves of a particular position. Directors have to be careful not to overly influence one another. Right. That is particularly true of the board chair. So there's a limitation there. Um, yes, we want the board chair and the CEO to get along. Absolutely, that relationship is bedrock to the success of a not-for-profit. But it, it is not an equal relationship. Uh, it is a collaborative relationship, but it's not an equal relationship. Yes. And so the board chair really can't be confiding in the CEO about all of her misgivings about what's going on at the board table because it very well may have repercussions for that CEO. So right. these people, these people need to have a confidential outlet where they can talk to someone about what's on their minds and um, know that that will be absolutely confidential. This is critical because boards deal with sensitive information all the time and directors need to be extraordinarily careful about how they handle that information. The one safe place you can take it is to a coaching session because you yeah. know that it's confidential. Mm, absolutely. And, and, and so in that, so then you establish that you know, space, that confidential space. And, and I'm sure, you know, there's a, an establishment of, of building rapport and trust in that. Um, and then let's go back to stories. So how do stories particularly play um, out at that level for people? Um, because, because what I'm thinking about is often, um, you know, if I went to a CEO or a board member and said, we're going to talk about, you know, the story you tell yourself today, they would probably not have a positive reaction to that there would be some they would be thinking why are you coming with me at, you know at, with this woo woo you, what are you trying to do so, so how do you build how do you because you because this is this is I, I i you know ian and i are fans we understand the impact that stories tell but how do you get that across at with people at that level well very subtly <laughs> <laughs> 
so, so Josephine, you're familiar with the phrase, tell me your story. Yes. Right? It's a way of getting to know someone. Yeah. And so, you know, it might be something as simple as that. In one of the first, you know, meetings between a coach and a coach counterpart, the coach will say, so, tell me your story. And, you know, they're going to sit back and listen for quite a long time. People's stories are precious to them. People, you know, are rehearsed at narrating their story, at putting it out there. So the coach sits back and listens. And then there's a moment in time where you then try to um, cut the umbilical cord between the coach counterpart and their story. And we do that through various visualization techniques. So a a common one um, is to ask the coach counterpart, so if your story were a movie and you were the protagonist in the movie, what would the title of the movie be? And then you see you speak about the story as separate and distinct from the person. There are other things that that we can do. Um, It's interesting how Zoom has impacted coaching. Uh, We used to coach in person at all times. Um, Now we're doing a lot of virtual coaching. This this one exercise is probably more suited to the in-person situation, but effectively you ask someone to find an object, something really quite, you know, anodyne, uh, a pencil, a stapler, um, just whatever's around. And get them to then say, all right, well, that is the story. That is the movie with the title, blah, blah, blah. And now place that in front of you, deliberately so, so that you're measuring the distance between yourself and the object. And then you can look at that object because it is physically separate from the person. And you can both sit there and look at the object and you're looking at, Um, the story that needs to be understood um, and perhaps reauthored, but you're not looking at the person and confronting them with overwhelming change. Yes, yes. I can see how that could be very powerful as well because um, often with change, that's one of the barriers, isn't it? That we we might want to change or we might see a vision for the future which is different but but it's overwhelming to think about the change required so i can i can see how that sort of um distance can create uh that how how do you how do you keep using your methodology around narrative coaching to to really get the shifts required um for people you know because it's one thing to kind of rewrite a script that's out there but how do people bring that into their lives once they kind of have the new script yeah okay excellent question Josie so coaching is a strength-based process okay and so obviously it is confronting for people to contemplate changing particularly transformative change and that could be true of individuals and of teams by the way Um, so what you do is you try to remind the coach counterpart of all the strengths that they bring to bear that will help them make this transition. Um, And you really are just picking up on what they've told you in their story, that they have these strengths. And so you can say, oh, well, 
Maybe that strength would come in handy now as we cross this particular Rubicon. Right, and, and, and you know, we have some great um, examples of um, some of those strength-based approaches in positive psychology as well. So there's a really lovely synergy there. Um, so Ian, did you want to have, did you want to ask a question? I can see you've got your hand up. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, I cut my teeth after finishing my organisational psychology training by working uh, in the Northern Territory AIDS Council. This is 32 years ago now. Uh, and I guess you could say it was not for profit, but it was NGO. It was providing direct services. And I, I was always struck at the time that those sorts of organisations that are very strongly values-based bring people in, especially if they have a, an overarching platform of empowerment and social change and social inclusion and policy change. They attract people with very strong drives, many of whom are unconsciously working out their own stuff. And my experience in the Northern Territory AIDS Council was it was this stage uh, in a very chaotic theater in which people were acting out psychodramas without even really being consciously aware of their stuff. And the organization really needed systems to help people process their whole narrative, if you like, uh, of their own empowerment and their distress and their grief and their anger. Um, and the more, the more people started to explore power, the angrier they got because they started to have a voice and started to have a sense of what they wanted to change. And I guess my question to you, Randall, is do, do the people that you tend to coach, are they drawn to not-for-profits for strong values-based reasons or is it more of a strategic political, uh, sorry, uh, career decision or maybe it's a little bit of both? And I guess my question, the other question is to what extent is there an intersection between the movie that they create for their, for their story within the organisation and I guess a subplot about their their own lives. <laughs> okay, well, there's a lot there's a lot in that, Ian. So let uh -huh. me let me try to unpack that a little bit. Um, so there are many reasons why people become involved in not for profits. Um, uh, oftentimes, I call them passion projects. Okay, so you've been involved in a in a profession. You've been involved in a pastime, a hobby, a sport. And uh, you go on to become a leader of that particular community and you feel intensely strong about it. Um, and that's particularly true, I think, of volunteer non-executive directors in the not-for-profit sector because they're not getting paid. They're getting paid in the self-satisfaction of, of advancing a mission or a purpose yep. that they deeply believe in. Yep. Now, uh, uh, CEOs, though will uh, you know, be attracted um, to working in not-for-profits for the professional opportunities. We've got to remember that the not-for-profit sector um, in this country and overseas um, is a major sector, a major employer. Um, yes. and, I, and I think I've seen comparisons you know, that the not-for-profit sector in Australia anyway is larger than the retail sector, for wow. example, in terms of the number of people that it employs. So... Therefore, you have a lot of professional opportunities for people. But I think overall, in 2022, people are looking for purpose, whether that be through not-for-profit organizations or through corporates and the various 
shades in between social enterprises, B Corps, uh, philanthropic trusts, etc., etc. There's a lot of opportunity now. Everybody's looking for meaning and purpose in what they're doing. Um, now, I want to come back to your experience in the Northern Territory. Because what you've highlighted here, Ian, is the difference between coaching and counseling. So I'm gonna leave co counseling to the trained professionals like yourself and Josephine, okay? And it's very important that we understand where the boundaries are. Yeah. People come to coaching to move forward, not to look back. Hmm. If someone is interested in looking back, um, then uh, I will send them to a counselor. Um, because that's where you can, you know, unpack your history and begin to look for patterns and understand why it is you behave the way you do in particular circumstances. The coach is about the how. The, ho the coach is about how to move forward from here to your desired destination. We don't care. We don't care um, how you came to this point. We care about how you moving you from this point to the next point. Um, and I think, you know, this is one of the most important things for both people who want to use coaching and people who want to become coaches to understand that um, unless you are a trained counselor, you do not, you do not get into the psychodrama of their lives as you described. Um, I guess the other guardrail is mentorship. So people confuse the two all the time. They think, mm -hmm. oh, you know, oh, I'll be a great coach because I've led this illustrious career, either in business or politics or government or in the not-for-profit sector. The reality is your experience is pretty useless because as a coach, you don't, ex you don't share your experience. If we have one golden rule, the rule is you shall not offer advice. Coaching is a structured conversation which uh, supports an individual to come to their own conclusions about their current situation and their own plans about what lies ahead. We do not offer advice. Mentors offer advice. Okay, mentors reach into their bag of deep experience and pull out, you know, experiences that they've had before as learning tools and they hand them over. They hand them over to the to the counterpart and say, oh, here, you can benefit from my experience. You might want to do the same thing that I did. Well, the same thing that I did is not likely to be as purpose fit as the thing that the coach counterpart comes up with in the session. Yes. So therefore, coaching, I think, is infinitely more powerful. Now, that said, it is, it is so tempting to move into mentoring roles. Um, and it's, it's not unheard of. I mean, I sometimes do with clients that, that say, are working in similar areas to, to ones that I had worked in, in, in earlier in my career. Um, I, but, but what happens is, in a coaching environment, you signal and you say, all right, I'm going to switch modes now. I'm going to move from being a coach and I'm going to just share a little bit of my experience because I think it's very relevant. You often keep that to the very end of a session because you don't want to interrupt someone's 
uh, thought processes they're coming up with really fertile ideas about how they're going to move forward because the the whole session needs to be in the service of the counterpart i get i you know there is nothing for the coach in it other than the coach needs to do a good job the coach needs to be de devoted to the success of the coach counterpart the coach needs to be their unwavering champion through everything. Um, and it must always be in the service of the coach counterpart and it must be clear focus on them and their lives going ahead. So that's why um, uh, coaches don't share their own, their own experience. Yeah, that's great, Randall. It's a really, it's a really nice distinction. And I think people do conflate those roles quite a, well, especially um, clients of coaching and mentoring and counselling tend to not perhaps understand the differences. Just to clarify, I'm not a trained counsellor either. I'm an organisation, I have a PhD in organisational psychology, but I'm not registered with the, the regulator yeah. and neither is Ian. So we should, we'll just, yeah, yeah. But, um, but, and like you, Randall, I absolutely refer people to, um, my peers um, in, in my network who I trust who are great counsellors and great psychologists So because a, there's there's different work there. Yeah. They're very subtle distinctions but very significant yes, ones. absolutely. So Randall, absolutely. I was curious when people uh, give their pencil or whatever the name of a film, do they, do they use an existing movie or do they create a title for themselves? <laughs> um... Well, I'll tell you, the best ones are where people create a title for themselves. Um, uh, I was coaching um, a fellow who works in an environmental NGO recently. And um, he, had, he had worked in many countries in the Asia-Pac region. And in fact, really, he had been uh, you know, away from Australia for, I think, 25 years, Ola. Um, and in recent years, just prior to the pandemic, he returned to Australia, uh, still working for the same NGO, but, but returned to Australia, where he had not lived for 25 years. I asked him, what, what should the title be of his story up until this point, or his, his current story? Um, his, his prior story was he was an experienced junkie, so that he, you know, traveled the world in search of more and more experiences, meeting more and more interesting people. And he was bloody successful at it, shall I say. His current story was um, experienced junkie trapped in the suburbs. <laughs> because he and his wife had moved, even though they were from Tasmania, they moved to the suburbs of Brisbane. And there was a bit of a plan for their now adult children to join them. And uh, he just felt that he was absolutely marooned. And so he called his story The Experienced Junkie Trapped in the Suburbs. Um, he then went on um, to, uh, um, I, can't, I can't remember the next name of the film, um, but he went on to make a transition and to realize, actually, he and his wife decided that they shouldn't live in the suburbs, that they were the last kind of people to live in the suburbs. And so they made a family decision and they sold up in the suburbs and they used the 
the profit they'd made off the Australian property market to buy, you know, a, a block of land in the bush because this guy was an environmentalist. Um, and so seeing that story play out and evolve over about a nine or 10 month period was intensely satisfying. You know, here we have someone who's, who's still working, not traveling as much, but now has sort of regained their bearings, if you will. They know where they are, they know where they're going, and um, they're in a more comfortable place because they did the work to understand what had gotten to them where they were, what the current situation was, and what they could possibly do in the future. I, I love that. Actually, it reminds me, one of my um, very good friends often says, um, it's your story, make the pivot. And that it sounds like that, doesn't it? Because it sounds like, um, for example, just using that, that person, he might have been in someone else's story in that Brisbane suburb. It sounds like it wasn't, it wasn't the story he wanted to be in. Yeah, that's right. And that made it accessible and amenable to change mm. because it sat outside of him. I, I, I think this, this is probably a discussion for another podcast because it's so fascinating and there's so many temptations for a deep dive. But, you know, organisations have their own stories too. There is the dominant narrative of the organisation. And, uh, you know, sometimes... It can be a great story. It could be a it could be a, an ironic story. Um, I think in the case of that early time in Darwin, the dominant story, if it had been a movie, would have been somewhere between Poltergeist and the Poseidon Adventure because there was so much drama going on. Um, and you know, sometimes organisations don't recover from those stories, um, or the people have to leave and create a new one. Again, I'm just. It's more of a reflection that I guess if you're dealing with execs who are trying to tease out their own story or their own title for their movie, uh, they have to be able to tease it out from the organisational setting in which they're in. Well, um, ab absolutely, Ian. I mean, so and you're what you're suggesting now is that you know can teams and organisations undergo a similar process to what an individual can go through, and the answer is yes. Yes, and, and let's just think. Um, teams can tell themselves some terrible, terrible stories sometimes. You yes. know, um, these are these. This is the team that you know never makes the playoffs. This is the team that you know only wins at home. This is the team that you know last won thirty five years ago. A reality by the stories they tell themselves. The same is true of businesses. The same is true of charities and not-for-profits. All sorts whole of organizations. Whole communities, entire whole communities. subcultures. Yeah. Exactly. Whole communities. Um, but you, you can, working as a group, change the story as well. Um, and so, you know, I'm keen to work with boards of not-for-profits who need to change their story, um, who need to pivot from say the 20th century to the 21st century. Maybe that means digitization. Maybe it means reimagining your purpose. Um, but teams can go through this process. Um, the way they do that is quite similar to design thinking. So design thinking um, has popped up as a tool in the last, I don't know, Josie, 15 years? 
Since we... Yes. Uh, yes. Probably since... The, actually, there was some work in the 70s that draws, that design thinking draws on. But yes, popularized in the last 15 years. Yeah. So, so mm. design thinking is it, what took the idea of participant design further. Um, and so we've seen, you know, design thinking explode uh, in, in all modern economies around the world. Um, and design thinking goes through a four-stage process in order to deliver the innovation that you're seeking through that process. The same is true of coaching. Um, so the first, the first stage is observe what is by understanding the current situation. The second is imagine what if. What if, what a beautiful sort of formulation of words. What if, and that's by generating multiple options. And you continue to generate options and options and options and options until you can't generate any more. And then you prototype what matters. And coaches use the same question used by design thinkers, and it is this. What might we try? Or coaches will say, what might you try first? Which means that there are lots of things you can try and you just have to make a start and choose one. And then finally, you implement what works. And this is where coaching goes a step further than design thinking because you've got the coach there, right? And the coach acts as an accountability partner um, to ensure that counterparts follow through on their plans, right? So at the end of a session, um, I might ask a coach counterpart, oh, so when are you going to do X action that you've committed to do? And then I say, and how will I know that you've done that? And oftentimes they'll send me an email or they'll do something. But the fact that they know that they need to be accountable for the decisions that they make and they have to report back to satisfy that accountability encourages them to move faster and or forward at a faster rate than they other might, otherwise might do. Yeah. That's absolutely right, at Randall. Well, we, we've gone from, you know, talking about narrative uh, stories we tell, narrative coaching, individuals, boards, uh, CEOs, the some of the stories that they tell to all the way through to understanding that teams um, and organisations can also be particularly fixed in a story that may not be serving their strategy and organisational purpose. And um, so I'm sure that actually that is another podcast topic because we do a lot of that work in team coaching as well. So maybe we can have another conversation about that. But I, we are out of time, Randall. So I wanted to give you an opportunity just to leave us with a, a lasting thought and then we'll we'll have to say goodbye. Um, sure, Josie. Well, uh, look, I'm looking forward to that next podcast. We should probably use the Toronto Maple Leafs. Um, the Toronto Maple Leafs have a very, very well-worn story, which is that they have not won the Stanley Cup since 1967. Wow, that's a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so they're well and truly stuck in their old story. It'd be interesting to see how we could get them to move <laughs> to become the new Toronto Maple Leafs. But uh, uh, anyway, everyone, everyone can make a change. Um, yeah. Coaches are simply here to help that process along 
It's um, one of the most rewarding things that I do in my career. Um, I do a lot of varied work in the not-for-profit sector from governance and strategy planning um, through to coaching. But I think coaching is the most satisfying because that's where you're dealing with individual people. And it's about them. Uh, even though it's in the context of a charity or a larger than self issue, coaching is about people, it's about them. And when you can help someone make those difficult transitions, when you can help them pivot from the past to the, to the future, it's immensely satisfying. So thank you so much for the opportunity to speak about coaching this morning and I'll look forward to talking to you again.